So Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 to 14, the section is titled The Valley of Dry Bones. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can you see these, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Come breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The second reading today comes from John 6, verses 60 to 71. Many disciples desert Jesus. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. 
He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And the next answer from Simon Peter is something that Rusty would remember. Because Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Well, friends, you, might, uh, you probably know of the Great Dividing Range along the eastern side of Australia. There's a map coming up here of the Great Dividing Range. Uh, it runs pretty much down the whole eastern edge of Australia. It's uh, at 3,500 kilometres thereabouts. It's, uh, I'm told, the third longest land-based mountain range in the world. It's also what's called a watershed. If you know uh, about how kind of uh, uh, water kind of management works, this is called a watershed. There's a line running along the range, um, and depending on which side of that line the rain falls, uh, it'll either roll kind of uh, eastwards into the Pacific Ocean, up maybe up near Brisbane or something, or on just the other side of the watershed. Um, the dividing line, it'll wind its way down southwest, and if you go to the next map, uh, eventually kind of make its way down, down here, <laughs> down to Gulwa. Uh, it's, uh, it's a powerful image about those moments when everything changes. Right? You, you imagine these two raindrops coming down next to each other, uh, heading the same direction, uh, going the same way, and they hit the watershed. It's a moment that changes everything. Uh, and they end up going in completely opposite directions. Um, this passage that we just read in John's Gospel is kind of like a watershed moment in the Gospel. Uh, up till now, Jesus has had some—he's had some disputes with uh, Jewish leaders, uh, uh, and, but he's been popular with the crowds. Right? He's been—he's gathered large crowds. We saw that through chapter six. Uh, he performed. A great miracle. He fed probably around 15,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. The crowd are so captivated with Jesus. If you've been with us, you remember they follow him across the Sea of Galilee um, looking for him and they find him in the synagogue and they sit there and they listen to him teach and debate with the religious leaders. But by the time Jesus has finished what we read today, by the time when we get to this passage, uh, Jesus ends up in what seems like a complete failure. What seems like a complete failure. His followers have gone from thousands to this scraggly group of 12. Um, who, that would, I did, you maybe those who are better at maths can per, um, correct me. I did a bit of maths and I came up with a figure that that le- left about 0.08% of the people who started out at the start of this chapter who stuck with Jesus by the end. Less than 0.1 of a percent. 
And it wasn't just the distant kind of hangers-on who, were, who, had, who left Jesus. It wasn't just them. Uh, it was people who were, did you notice as we read through the passage, it was people who were his disciples uh, who left him. Uh, people who had said, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. Um, so this is a bit of a dangerous passage to read. It's not a great church growth strategy. By the end of hearing Jesus' sermon you too can have 99.9% of people leave. <laughs> you know, so, so you can imagine it getting pitched. Uh, but what's going on here? We're going to see how Jesus responds to this, these disciples of him leaving. We're going to see how, we, what he, how he responds. Uh, and to, hopefully my prayer is that we will see the, the life in his words, the life that is there. We, but we, um, as uh, we've been looking at throughout, we can't do this on our own. Uh, we need the light that comes from God himself. So I'm going to pray again. Can we do that? And uh, Lord, we, we pray also for us right now as we hear your word. We know that it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. We know, Father, that we cannot even long, cannot even desire to come to you and we cannot understand your word without your work first in us. So we pray for that, Lord. We depend on you in all things. We pray, please, by your Spirit, bring your word to life in us, that it might bear good fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, the story of the, uh, the worst sermon that's ever been preached, okay, from 15,000 to 12 people by the end of it. I, I say that. Facetiously, it's, of course, it's not the worst service, but you get the, the idea, right? Um, verse 60. On hearing it, this is what, on hearing what Jesus has just said, on, uh, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Um, why was it hard? I think it's, it was hard not because it was difficult to understand, it wasn't that kind of difficulty. Uh, you find out in, when Jesus responds to them, it, it was hard because it was offensive to them. It was a hard teaching because it offended them. Um, if you've been with us over the last two weeks, you'll know something of what Jesus has been saying and perhaps why it was so offensive to these disciples of his. Uh, Jesus uses that miracle of feeding the multitude of maybe 15,000 people. Jesus uses that miracle as an illustration of this deeper truth. Uh, this is kind of a recap of the last few weeks. It was meant to remind the people of God's great provision uh, for his people in the Old Testament um, event of the, the exodus out of Egypt where God provided, and we read it in the psalm at the start, God rained down bread, this bread from heaven called manna uh, every day for his people Jesus says he is the real manna. That was just a sign pointing to him. He is the real manna. He is the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives eternal life. Uh, he is God's great provision for his people. Uh, and from now on, if people want to have the life that God offers, Jesus says they need to come to him. They need to come to Jesus to put their trust in him. Uh, and we saw we kind of finished last week with this graphic picture of Jesus saying, "You need to come to me and feed on me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Find your, your, the source of your life in my death for you. Find the source of your life at, at my cross. 
He's, he's looking forward to that. Uh, and this was hard to take for many of his followers. This wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. And we've kind of also seen that through this chapter. This wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. They wanted a political leader. Um, uh, maybe they wanted someone who would just keep providing food for them, physical food. Uh, or they wanted a religious teacher to give them a few more good works to do in order to get to heaven. Um, or they wanted a signs and wonders Jesus. That was another one that came up last week, uh, who would keep feeding their appetite for the spectacular. But we've seen that Jesus isn't interested in that. Uh, in, in the end, those versions of Jesus, uh, the, all the crowd wanted, the, what the crowd wanted, they're all focused on this life. They all see Jesus as primarily something, someone who I can use for my agenda. That's uh, the kind of common denominator across these different versions of what they were looking for. But Jesus says he's, he is on about something so much bigger than that. Um, he's something much better than that. He's here to give eternal life. Uh, he's not here to be manipulated for our agendas. He is the one who came down from heaven, the one who is equal with God, the eternal Son of the Father, who alone knows the Father and who alone reveals the Father to this world. And Jesus' disciples don't like this. They don't like hearing this. It's too much for Jesus to claim. If what Jesus says is true, uh, then he's not just some sort of figure to attach yourself to so that he might further your own agenda. You know what I mean? Like that, if, if what Jesus says is true, he's the one who sets the agenda. And if what he says about his, himself is true, then there is no part of your life that he doesn't have a right over. Um, we can't compartmentalise our lives into areas that it's okay for Jesus to say something about and other areas that it's not. Uh, so this kind of offends Jesus' disciples, the hugeness of his claims about himself. But notice that Jesus doesn't pull back. He doesn't kind of say, oh, you got it wrong. And um, Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? You ain't seen nothing yet, right? Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He's not just the one who comes down from heaven. He's the one who belongs in heaven. He's the one who will return there. Uh, and the one who belongs with the Father in eternal glory. So this is the sticking point for Jesus' disciples. The identity of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, that they just can't accept. And Jesus, he knows that this is too much for many of his followers to accept. In fact, did you notice that as we read through in verse 64? He actually knew it from the beginning. He knew that who wouldn't believe in him? But he's not, he doesn't get kind of derailed by it. He's not thrown by it. He knows that real, saving, genuine faith, believing in his words, he knows that it isn't something people can just achieve on their own. It's something that only comes from God. Verse 63, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The Spirit 
the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Um, in the Bible, especially the New, the New Testament, that word flesh, uh, it gets used like this. It's a way to talk about the human condition under its sin and rebellion against God. Um, that's the state that in the world of the Bible, that's the state that all people are born into. Uh, we naturally reject God's authority over us. We don't trust him in our own strength and by ourselves. We don't trust him as our good Lord, the one who created us and sustains us. That kind of humanity in rebellion against God, that's what gets called the flesh. Um, and that flesh counts for nothing. Uh, the only hope for us is that God, by his Spirit, gives us life as a free gift that comes from outside of ourselves. That's our only hope. That he enables us to hear Jesus' word and receive it and to believe it ourselves. Um, that's not something we can do on our own. It's not something any of us even wants to do on our own. This isn't saying that we don't have a free will. So this is the kind of free will conversation that um, gets talked about. When, uh, in, uh, we're not mindless machines under this kind of, uh, under what Jesus is saying. We're not just pawns in some great chess game. These disciples really chose to walk away from Jesus. And they were responsible for that. Um, we have real wills. In a sense, we have free wills. But what this is saying is that we always freely choose according to our nature. We always freely choose according to our nature. And if our nature is a fleshly nature, a sinful nature, we will always freely choose to reject God and not to believe in his Son. That's slightly complex. I don't know if you can get, sort of get your head around it. There's... Um, uh, since it's the year of the Reformation, I thought I'd throw a few Luther quotes in here. There's a quote from Luther here. Um, it should come up on the screen. Man does not do evil against his will under pressure as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it like a thief. Being dragged off against his will to punishment, he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is not something which he is something which he cannot, in his own strength, eliminate, restrain, or alter. So you're saying there that we, in our flesh, reject God. We walk away from Jesus. We don't believe in Him, um, and we do that willingly. Uh, we're not uh, doing that under pressure, dragged by the scruff of the neck into it we freely act according to our nature and that's why the flesh counts for nothing that's also why it is such a miracle of God's grace that should fill us with wonder and thanks and awe that the spirit gives life it is nothing less than a miracle if you look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ, if they are Christian people here who are believing in Christ, that is nothing less than a miracle. It's not because we've, as we looked at last week, not because we've thought our way up to God, but because he has graciously come down to us.
He gives life to those who don't deserve it. He gives life to those who don't even want it in themselves, but who he graciously chooses to. Uh, and do you notice that the work of the Spirit here is, back to the Bible um, passage, is all tied together with Jesus' words. Verse 65. Uh, the words I have spoken to you. He went on to say, oh, sorry, uh, wrong verse. Go back uh, uh, into verse uh, 63. The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you They are full of spirit and life. Sometimes uh, Christians can separate um, God's spirit and his word as if, and uh, at times it can be talked about in quite extreme ways, as if what's in the Bible is just dead ink on a page and it's really where the real action is at is in a spiritual experience or some kind of fresh revelation. Uh, But, you know, Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't do that. Um, God brings new life by his Spirit through his word. The words Jesus speaks are full of the Spirit and of life. Word and Spirit go together, and without both, genuine saving faith can't happen. It can't come. Um, Even those who hear the word, like the crowds here, Without God's Spirit, they cannot come. They are, unless the Spirit gives life, the Word falls on a valley of dry bones. But our only hope is not through our own efforts to figure Jesus out, it's not through a spiritual experience we create. It is only in God's gift of life by His Spirit, through His Word. And so in verse 65, Jesus goes on, That's why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. No one can hear these, life, these words full of life from Jesus unless God, by his Spirit, enables them to. And this is the watershed, friends. This is the watershed moment in verse 66. The crowd of disciples don't believe. Uh, God has not worked in them to enable them to come, but they still freely choose, according to their flesh, to leave. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's a, it can be a difficult kind of um, thing to grapple with, can't it? The, the, to hold both to God's sovereign work by his spirit uh, and humanity's responsibility, um, the fact that we really do are responsible for our actions. Especially it can be difficult when we think of those we love uh, who have walked away from God and who don't believe. No one, I think if we take Jesus' words here, no one who has rejected God can ever point the finger at him and blame him. Uh, they have chosen to do that according to their will uh, and they are responsible for that. But it can also leave us, those of us here who are Christians, it can leave us feeling pretty weak uh, and kind of desperate 
which is probably actually just where we need to be. Uh, It's God who brings life. What Jesus says here ought to drive us to prayer, uh, to recognising our own inability and God's great power to save. But we also need to hold this together with everything else Jesus has been saying. Uh, Jesus, and, and notice this as you go along, Jesus doesn't try and solve all the riddles for us. Uh, he doesn't try and do that. Um, he's not interested in that, and we should probably learn something from that. There are things that are beyond us. This isn't talking about a kind of anti-intellectualism. There's very, lots of ways you can think through it and lots of people who've given good time and thought to it. But at the end of the day, there are things that are beyond us. But what Jesus does give us are precious things to hold on to. Um, If you've been with us through chapter 6, you'll know that Jesus has already said that whoever, whoever comes to me will be given eternal life. He doesn't say only, only you and you and you. He says, whoever comes to me will have life. It's a free offer and it's a guarantee for everyone who does come to Jesus. This isn't meant to make us anxious if you have come to Jesus. You will have eternal life. If your faith is genuine, the only way that you could have that, the only way you could even want that is because God's Spirit is in you, enabling you, has chosen you and enabled you to come. But there's something else in here. Did you notice it as we... I sort of noticed it for the first time reading through it this week. Um, that little... When it says, tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning who was going to reject him. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus knew all along those people who would walk away from him and reject him. If I was Jesus, I probably would have not bothered with them, to be honest, <laughs> like I, if, I, if I knew that. Um, but Jesus still persists with them, gives them God's word, still offers himself as bread from heaven for them, knowing God's sovereignty didn't stop God the Son from continuing to share his word with everyone. Um, doesn't solve all our riddles and problems, but there are helpful promises and things to hold on to here, I think. But not everyone left him, did they? There were those, as you read on, there are those who God had enabled to come to Jesus, to come to him in genuine belief. Jesus turns to the twelve. He's in a circle of disciples. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter, he's kind of the representative of the group. He often pipes up first. He answers Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know Uh, to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, The focus now isn't on God's side of things. It's on the disciples. Uh, The focus is on the disciples. God has enabled them. But what does this look like for them? This genuine faith, this real belief. What does it look like for them? Uh, God has enabled them. But what's the shape of this real faith that God gives by his spirit? Um, First, they recognize they have no hope on their own. You you pick that up. There's a kind of desperation in their answer. Lord, who are we going to go to? Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? Where else could we go? Is the kind of um, 
implication, the thing behind that. Lord, to whom shall we go? They despair of themselves and they cling to Jesus. By God's grace, they have heard his words. Um, They haven't said that they're too difficult for them, they're too hard for their pride to accept. They hear Jesus' words uh, and they know that they are full of spirit and life and they know that he alone has the words of eternal life. So there's a kind of desperation in these disciples who God has drawn. Um, you notice they also trust themselves to Jesus and his life-giving word. They have, he says they have come to believe. Um, belief in the Bible is another way of talking about personal trust. They've placed their trust in this person, in Jesus. They've accepted who Jesus is. Um, interesting, isn't it? They, they don't say, oh, those guys who left you are all stupid. Um, they had some difficulties, but we've got it all worked out. Um, they, they don't say they don't have any difficulties. Um, they, they don't say that they've got it all figured out. What's different about them is that they know Jesus for who he is. They see the truth about him and they entrust their lives to him as the Holy One of God. There's a kind of desperation about them. There's this trust, handing over of their lives to Jesus. But did you notice also, as as we read, there's also a sense of real confidence about them, a kind of certainty. It's not just that they have come to believe in some vague, mystical way, they have come to believe, uh, they've, they've lived with Jesus, they've seen what he's done, they've heard his teaching, they've seen these signs that he's doing. They've come to believe in him, but not only to believe, we have come to believe and to know, and to know that you are the Holy One of God. God has, by his Spirit, given them lights to know who Jesus is. It's not some kind of secret hidden knowledge about some higher life that some people attain to. Um, They've just come to know, it's this personal knowledge, they've come to know the truth about the person of Jesus. Uh, They know that what he says is difficult, that it cuts against human pride, but they know him. And knowing him, the Holy One of God, trumps any difficulties they might have. But not all of them. And there's those last verses in this passage that are just a bit ominous, aren't they? Um, A bit of a warning, verse 70, Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. I think Jesus is talking along similar lines here, but he's talking about a kind of counterfeit faith. Or maybe, even, maybe a better way to put it is like a piggyback faith um, of the idea of being in the group um, and maybe presuming on that, assuming that that means you're trusting in Jesus, you have genuine saving faith, piggybacking of other people. Even, do you notice how striking this is? Even Judas chosen by Jesus to be in his inner circle. 
even he couldn't rely on that. It's only the Spirit of God who can give life. Just even being chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve, that wasn't something that Judas could rely on for his relationship to God and not his own personal faith, his belief and knowledge of who Jesus was. Just being in the crowd, and for us, it's a challenge, isn't it? Just even coming to church every week and being, even being like Judas in a position, a significant position, none of that counts for anything. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Okay, so friends, this is this watershed. It's a watershed in John's Gospel. It may be that today is a watershed for you as well. Um, To whom shall you go? I just wanted to maybe pull out the the kind of shape of the disciples' faith and see how it might apply to us today. Their faith was a kind of desperate faith. Um, Jesus' teaching here is, is not meant to lead to anxiety for those who genuinely want to follow him. Um, the awareness of your own need and the desire to know God as your Father is itself evidence that God's Spirit is at work in your life. But it is, it is meant to give us a kind of despair. A, 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 oh, that sounds a bit bleak, doesn't it? A kind of perpetual despair. It's not a despair in God's kindness or his faithfulness. He is faithful to his word and his promise that all who come to him he will never drive away. Uh, it's meant to lead to, uh, not, not to a despair of God and his character, but a right kind of despair of ourselves. The kind of desperation, that kind of desperation when we despair of our, ourselves and our own goodness, our own ability, um, that kind of, when, when it comes to saving faith, when it comes to being right with God, that kind of despair is actually a gift from God because what it will do, it will lead you to say, where else could I go? Where else? I've, I've tried these other places. They don't satisfy. That's food that spoils, that runs out. Where else could I go? Nothing and no one else can satisfy, can give real eternal life, only Jesus. Um, I've mentioned this quote again, but I thought because we're on a bit of a Luther hit today, there's this great story about Martin Luther at the end of his life, and the last words that he writes down before he dies. Um, remember what they were? We are all beggars. This is true. This is the great Martin Luther who started the Reformation and uh, this was kind of his last message. We all, what he was saying was we never move past that point of being beggars before God for his mercy and grace to somehow being those who contribute or those who um, can point to our own goodness. There's a kind of right desperation in genuine Christian faith. But there's also, that, that leads to, as we talked about, it leads to a saying, where else could we go? It leads to trust. 
this personal trust in, in Jesus, in who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, the one who belongs in heaven and will return there, or has returned there, uh, and now reigns with the Father, the only way to the Father, through his flesh and blood death on the cross, the only bread that will give real life. Desperation, trust is the same. Um, but this, the, the kind of third thing we talked about, a kind of certainty or knowledge. Um, I think this, uh, this has had a lot to teach me and encourage me with and spur me on and hopefully for all of us today. Um, it's a certainty that isn't based on ourselves, again. It's not based on the disciples' capacity to figure it all out. It doesn't mean that they didn't have any questions that they wanted answered. But it was a certainty in the person of Jesus because truth is a person, ultimately. Um, We have doubts. There are things that for us are hard to understand. They are all real and they can trouble any of us. The disciples' knowledge, their certainty, isn't because they figured it all out, isn't because they've got some kind of years, uh, years and years of a higher research degree or some kind of, you know, it isn't because of any of that. It's because they know Jesus. That's where their knowledge, their certainty comes from. And despite their own limitations and their, their, their doubts, it all falls away when they see and know him. The great example of this in John's Gospel and we'll get there in a long time, is right at the end of the gospel after Jesus has risen from the dead. And there's the story about Thomas. If you, know, if you know Thomas in the gospels, he's the great doubter. He doubts about Jesus. The great example of this is him. Uh, what gi- he has this moment of transformation. And what, what gives him his certainty isn't that Jesus says, well, sit down with me, Thomas, and let's go through all your questions and we'll just figure them out now. That's not actually what gives Thomas his, his certainty. What gives him this knowledge is being confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. In a much fuller way, even than here in John 6, after Jesus is risen from the dead, he's defeated death and he's been raised to live forever as God's eternal king over God's people. When Thomas is confronted with the risen Jesus, All that's left for him to do is fall on his knees and cry out, my Lord and my God. The doubter is transformed by the person of Jesus. That's what gives him... We're going to sing, um, really, in a moment, we're going to sing, sorry, at the end of our service, And Can It Be, that great hymn. Uh, That is a hymn of great certainty. And if you're trusting in Christ, you can sing, Bold I Approach the Eternal Throne and claim the crown, not because of my own goodness or my own efforts or anything because of in me, but through Christ, my own. So perhaps this is a watershed day for you. Uh, It may be that you hear Jesus teaching and say this is too hard. In a way, it would be better to realise that now than to go on with a kind of counterfeit faith like Judas. But if you do that, where else will you go? Where else could you? 
Jesus' claims may be hard for proud people to accept, but they are true and they are good. Far better for today to be the kind of watershed moment for you to say, well, where else could I go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. And now by God's grace, because of his spirit, through his word, now I believe and I know that he is the Holy One of God. Can we pray together? Lord, thank you for this, in a way, a sobering passage as many people leave Jesus. Um, We thank you, though, Father, for the way in which Jesus wasn't thrown by that. Um, We thank you for his, the way he... um, knew and knows you and came from the Father to earth and reveals you perfectly. Um, Father, we pray we might receive his words as they truly are, as full of the Spirit and of life. Father, for those of us um, uh, who have not believed in our own, in, in our own lives, have not received the gift of Jesus. We pray, please, by your Spirit, open our hearts to that. For all of us, Father, we pray that you might continue to work in us this kind of humble, desperate, trusting, confident faith. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.